This is Negotiate X Podcast, show number 76, part A. You're listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Hello and welcome to this special Veterans Day edition of the NegotiateX podcast. My name is Nolan Martin, co-host and co-founder, and with me as always, great friend, co-host, co-founder, Aaron Denisian. Aaron, you want to kick it away for us today? I will. And uh, and fellow veteran too. And let me be the first to wish you a happy Veterans Day, Nolan, and say thank you to you and your, the fellow folks at West Point who I got to teach in your generation uh, who chose to serve uh, in our military. So Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Likewise, Sandy. Many of our listeners know Nolan was one of my cadets when I was teaching negotiation at West Point. And we reconnected in 2019, several years after Nolan had graduated at the West Point Negotiation Project Workshop to help present an award in memory of a dear friend, classmate of Nolan's and of one of my former students, Captain Drew Ross. Drew was killed in Afghanistan on November 27th, 2018, while serving with the Special Forces Unit. Drew was an outstanding negotiator, a natural collaborator, creative problem solver, and relationship builder. And we honor his memory by giving a portion of anything we earn at NegotiateX through training programs to the award that is given annually in honor to a cadet who exemplifies Drew's excellence, passion, and service as part of the West Point Negotiation Project. We'll be sure to include links to the Drew Ross Memorial Foundation as part of our program files. And again, I just want to say thanks to all those who have served. So with that, let me turn to our featured veteran for 2023, and that is Shannon Huffman Polson, the author of The Grit Factor, Courage, Resilience, and Leadership in the Most Male-Dominated Organization in the World, as well as the memoir, North of Hope. She is the founder of The Grit Institute, a leadership institute committed to whole leader development and host of The Grit Factor podcast. Shannon also teaches on the faculty of the Tuck School's Leadership and Strategic Initiative Executive Education Program. As one of the first women to fly the Apache helicopter in the United States Army, leading line units on three continents, Shannon combines her passion and firsthand experience in and study of leadership, grit, purpose, and story to address the needs of her clients in the face of challenge and change with world-class keynotes and executive education. After serving for a decade in the armed forces, Shannon earned her MBA at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. I hear it's a pretty good school. <laughs> and later her MFA. She went on to lead outstanding teams in the corporate world, in the medical device industry, and at Microsoft. As a community leader, Polson successfully envisioned, founded, and led the completion of a $6.5 million new library and civic center. Shannon has a decade of experience speaking to companies and organizations around the world and is consistently the highest rated speaker at her events. Shannon lives with her husband and two children in Washington State. Thank you, Shannon, for joining us today. And thank you for your service to our country. Thank you. And thanks for having me on the show. It's really an honor to be here with you. 
Well, as you know, um, you are our special guest for Veterans Day. So let me just start by asking you, as you reflect upon your journey that led you into the military, why was it that you decided to serve? And what thoughts would you offer young people today, especially young women? who are considering whether military service is right for them. Yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, I would like to say that uh, my decision to serve was was based on a profound set of truly exploring where it was that I wanted to go. I think the reality was I, I was at college at Duke University. I had grown up in Anchorage, Alaska. I did not have any inclinations towards the military at all, although my father had served in the JAG Corps, drafted out of law school for Vietnam and sent to Alaska instead. And so, uh, and so when I arrived at Duke, I was also aware of the expense of college. And so I thought I would try, in addition to my two other jobs of waitressing and working in the East Campus Housing Office at uh, Duke, I would also try ROTC. And then I could at least say that I tried it and it wasn't a fit. And I ended up loving it. And I, I loved it, I think, I'm going to get to the second part of your question here in a minute, because it was about service to something that was bigger than myself. And that was very much a part of the values that I was raised with, and certainly the values that I probably hadn't articulated, but were very important for me to continue to live. And so that service in support of something bigger than myself was the connection, in addition to a really awesome group of cadets that were a part of it that had grown up, you know, like I had, where we'd worked jobs ever since we were 10 years old. And so it was a wonderful opportunity to be part of a program with a great group of people in service to something bigger than myself. And that is the recommendation I would make to those who are considering it today is what is absolutely critical for all of us is to find something bigger than we are to serve and to really have an opportunity to contribute to. And for those who are considering the military, I'd love you to read The Grit Factor, of course, but also look at other stories of those who have served and see if that's the place that you are called to contribute your best self. And if it is, then then go for it. But uh, but start the question of where am I meant to contribute in this world? What breaks my heart? Where do I best want to offer my learning, my abilities, my energy to the world? What a great passion. I know we're going to get into and explore more around passion uh, as we go forward. But this question about where am I meant to contribute? And I appreciate the focus about both values, something bigger than ourselves, as well as the connection we make with those we serve. And I, I, I think for all of us that have worn the uniform, those two things come up time and time again, don't they? Absolutely. It's it's where, where it all matters, right? Yeah. Yeah. Shannon, you left the service in 2001. How did your time in uniform impact the amazing work you've done and continue to do since? Yeah, I, I, that's a really good question. I think it's very difficult to, or probably impossible to separate those past experiences that we've had, those past opportunities to serve and to learn and to grow, uh, to work with others uh, from anything that we are or that we will become. And in the military, there's an opportunity, as you both know, and many of much of your audience knows as well, that there's this incredible opportunity to build these very specific skills that are execution oriented and that are problem solving oriented and 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 much bigger than the actual specific task at hand. And so there's no question in my mind at all that the mindset that was honed and developed in the military, as well as that willingness to basically make it happen, right? I think that that is something that um, honestly is in pretty short supply, as it turns out, once you get out. 
And that has been absolutely indispensable for me, both in navigating, uh, you know, post-service academic environments, as well as post-service corporate environments, and ultimately now the entrepreneurial world, the writing world, and the nonprofit world, in the case of the library that you mentioned earlier. And then as someone who's separated from the Army, what advice would you give me or other veterans on how to successfully navigate this transition? Well, the most important thing, and this is not something that any of us do well, or at least I don't do well, most of us execution-oriented don't do well, is to be patient with the process. That's really, really hard to do. And I would say trust the process. The really incredible opportunity that we have to do out of uniform, which many of us didn't have a chance to do in uniform, is to do that work to look at your story, to own your story, to shape your story, to really do a deep values examination and say both what matters to me, not what does somebody else say should matter to me. And sometimes those two things seg, and hopefully in the military they do to some degree because that's what makes it all worthwhile. But now what really matters to me? Where am I meant to show up and contribute in the world? And it's a hard exercise. It's one that really gives people pause, I think, after service and can be really disorienting for a while. But it's why I developed the Paths to Purpose six-week program at the Grit Institute is is for this process, is really what is my purpose? What are these values? And then I would say you just try different things. Try different things and say, hey, I'm going to do this for six months or I'm going to do this for a year. And then I'm going to assess that at the end of the year and say, what have I learned? Where have I contributed? Is this something I want to take forward? Is there a way that I might want to shift my path? But more than anything, be patient. Know that it will come. Know that the world needs your contributions after service as much at least as it needed it in service. And so be patient with that process and know that that if you continue that exploration, you continue that interrogation of your experience and your work, that it will come. Shannon, you you attended the Tuck School of Business upon leaving service. You continue to stay involved in Tuck. I teach at Tuck. I know it's it's as dear to you as it is to me. It could is. you could you say a few words about what those two years, the connections, the education have meant to you it, now over the last twenty years of, of of work that you've been doing? That's right. I, by the time this airs, I will have attended our 20th reunion, which is sort of exciting. Um, well, and, and I hate to, to to lead with this because it's so there's so many stereotypes involved with this. But um, I, but two of my best friends uh, are from Tuck. Uh, I met my husband at Tuck, <laughs> so that that might say a lot about the connections that came from there. It, it certainly is this very close knit and supportive environment in a way that very few places, frankly, are. I mean, very few places post-military and certainly very few academic environments. So it was a place for me to, and this was awkward because it's hard to leave this insular, super mission-focused place, right? The super purpose-focused and purpose-driven in this external sort of a way. And then you get out into the world where it's kind of about you and what you decide to do and if you decide that you're going to be selfish or not and, and all of those things. And that was a very difficult transition for me to make. I don't know that I, I, I didn't navigate it particularly gracefully initially. And I think that Tuck gave me the space to be able to experiment a little bit, to try to find my place, to try some different things in terms of what might be of interest and where I might be able to actually contribute. And, and I was really grateful for that transition period because it's not an easy transition to make as all veterans who have made that transition know. Yeah, I love the word grateful. Boy, as, a, as someone who teaches at Tuck, I hope that my students feel like they have the freedom to experiment that space, right? And then I, I always encourage them to be grateful for the time that they have yes. there. I, I know I'm grateful to be back teaching. Yes. 
This is a special community. It absolutely is. And Hanover is an incredible place, right? So it's, um, of course, you'd need to like being out in the woods a little. But, uh, <laughs> but most of us did. So. <laughs> That's right. And we don't want to broadcast it too much because I like the way the Upper Valley just kind of stays the same. And we want to keep yes. that a little bit. So we'll keep it a little bit of a secret. Fair point. <laughs> we want to get into discussing both your book and the work you do at the Grin Institute. And I got to tell you, the first time I remember hearing the word grit as a kid was in watching the old John Wayne movie called True Grit. It was and still is one of my favorite movies. I think one of the best movie scenes of all time is when John Wayne's character, Rooster Cogburn, is facing off. It's near the end of the movie, facing off against four outlaws on horseback. And he's charging them. He's got his got the reins, the the, the bridle in his mouth, and he's got a, a rifle and a gun on either, in either hand. And Maddie Ross, who really demonstrates, uh, and we'll get right, a lot of grit herself, she's a pretty remarkable character, has hired Cogburn be, to go after the man who who killed her father saying she wanted a man with true grit. Have you ever seen, I don't know, have you seen the movie? Does, <laughs> I am embarrassed to say that I have not, but I have to tell you that I may go watch it tonight. Yeah, okay. So I promise you by the time this show airs, I will have seen it. <laughs> <laughs> and he is anything. He is anything from a perfect, flawless character, okay? But I think, right. I, I think grit shines true. How do you define grit and why is it critical to a leader's ability to influence others and inspire teams? Yeah, that's a great question. I may begin the answer to that with the definition that many of you may know from Angela Duckworth's book called Grit as well, uh, which is passion and perseverance towards a very long-term goal. And I have modified, or I have a modified understanding of it, which really is, is a bit more of a dogged determination in the face of difficult circumstances. That's how I have defined it from my own experience and, and from talking now and doing the research for the grit factor. There's a doggedness to it that's a lot less kind of sexy than, uh, than, than the previous conversation. Do you mind repeating that one more time just for our listeners? I love your definition, the way you just referred it. Yeah, of it. course. Yeah, I've, I've defined grit as a dogged determination in the face of difficult circumstances. And there is certainly, and I know we're going to talk about this in just a moment, but in, in the Venn diagram of grit and resilience, there's certainly overlap, but I don't think they're the same thing. There is in grit this doggedness and this absolute commitment, this absolute determination. Now, there's lots of nuance to this as well. It's not black and white. It's not this discrete thing that we pop off the shelf when we need it for mile 23 of the marathon. That's not all that it is. That's one of the many things that it is. Uh, and so I know we're going to get into the, some of the nuances here because it is so critically important, but it's a lot more nuanced than we give it credit for. As a veteran, author, business leader, and a professor, what role has GRIT played in your own life journey and achievements? And are there specific experiences that stand out as emblematic of a gritty mindset? Yeah, thanks for that question. Absolutely. And I know this is something that as we all go through life, we will have opportunities to define this for ourselves. And you know, the, as I was thinking which one to share with you, maybe the one that I'll bring up is actually a personal experience. I was going to talk about the library, which certainly required massive amounts of grit over six years of, of nonprofit work. Um, but, you know, I'm going to back up, actually, and, and to an experience that happened just after business school. It's the subject of my first book, which is North of Hope, The Daughter's Arctic Journey. And um, I was working at Microsoft. It was my second job after business school. I was working in uh, finance, which was very much not the right fit for me. <laughs> and uh, lots and lots of spreadsheets and lots of kind of clunky applications that we were trying to make work together. And I'd only been there for six months. And, uh, and I was visiting my brother down in Portland, Oregon. And we were walking through a market. And my cell phone rang. 
And I silenced it in my purse and we continued to walk through the market and find a couple of fun things to purchase and bring home. And and then we got into our respective cars. I was going to be heading back up to Seattle and he was heading back to his home in Hillsborough. And then I looked at my cell phone and the text message on my now somewhat old cell phone, I guess, 2005, was a 907 area code, which is for the state of Alaska where I'm from. And it ended with the three digits, 911. And uh, I called the number and the other end picked up and they said they were the police in Kaktovik, Alaska. And Kaktovik is a tiny little Inuit village off a barrier island off the northeast coast of Alaska. And I knew that my dad and stepmom had been on a kayaking trip on the Hula Hula River. It was their 16th anniversary. They had done a lot of Arctic trips before, but something must have happened. And they asked if I was the daughter of Richard and Catherine Huffman, and I said that I was. And then there were words that I'll never forget. Uh, and the words were, um, I'm sorry to tell you this, but a bear came into their campsite last night and they were both killed. Mm-hmm. And that was more than anything else in my life to that point or after really in many ways, uh, completely changed the trajectory of everything. It, it, it completely changed the entire life that was ahead of me and, and how I understood life behind me. And, uh, and when we start to talk about grit, one of the many nuances of grit, I think, is is realizing that you have to face it, right? You have to face the wind. And I use that metaphor all the time from my time in aviation. But I knew that this was something that could bring me down, that I might not recover from. And I had to decide to face it directly. And I remember in the aftermath of that, we, you know, in the, that first week, we, we called the church. We, we called my dad's best friend who dug his grave in, in this rural graveyard in Alaska. And um, we arranged the service and did all those things that you do in that first week. And, and I remember our priest from growing up came up to me and he said, you know, Shannon, this is, um, you think that you're feeling this now, but this is nothing compared to what's going to happen in about six weeks, what you're going to feel in about six weeks. And I remember going back and thinking, okay, how do I manage myself? Like, how do I, how do I anticipate this? And I signed up for a grief group and I signed up for a counselor and like put those things in place because I knew I was going to need them. And I did need them, it turns out. Um, but then I also started to think about and ultimately arranged to go back and retrace their steps that following year. And that's what the book North of Hope is about, is going back to the Arctic of Alaska, where I had never been but where they had died and taking the same trip that they had taken. And I can't pack all of that into this podcast and we're going to talk about a lot of other things. But I think that willingness to face directly Mm. into the challenge that was bigger than any challenge that I had ever anticipated that I'd ever wanted. It was nothing that I wanted, but I had to make the decision to face it directly and, and to go straight through it. And that was, I think, an important part of moving through that experience, which is an experience, of course, that stays with you for the rest of your life. So thank you for sharing that. You mentioned it in your book, you discuss it. It's huge. Um, so I know we could spend more time there yeah, yeah. talking about it. Your entire book, it hits with a pretty heavy hand. And yet, and yet I found it very digestible. I just finished it just a few days ago. Oh, great. And, and as I was sharing as we were coming on, um, I, I so appreciated it just for where I think I am personally and professionally. And even as a, a parent, maybe we can get into uh, near the end, how you teach kids to be gritty there. The protagonists in your book are all women. Yes. Uh, I would love to know what your inspiration was for writing the book. 
and the focus you gave to it and what you hope your readers, regardless of gender, will take from yes. its application for their own lives. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I first started to think about this, the grip factor, and I called it the grip project for a while, it was as a result of a young leader reaching out to me and asking me to mentor her on an online platform for the same journey that I had taken that number of years before. You know, she was heading down to Fort Rucker, Alabama. She was going to go to flight school, become an aviation leader. And I said, of course. And then I thought, oh my gosh, well, I've been out of the army now for 10 years. You know, I went to business school. My time in the army was kind of specific. It was an integration of women into an all-male, you know, combat arms, attack aviation. So it was pretty specific. And so some of the challenges might be specific. So how can I scale what I offer to this young leader? And if I do that work, how do I scale the people to whom it's offered, right? These findings are offered. And that was the beginning of what ultimately began, uh, became the grit factor. That was interviewing women in the vanguards of their fields. They all happen to be women, right? They're all leaders. They all served in various capacities across the services. We have general officers from every branch of service, aviators from World War II to the present, one of the first women Army Rangers, another West Pointer, of course, a Coast Guard, a rescue swimmer, and many, many more. And 201, they shared their stories so candidly and so honestly. It was an act of real generosity, truly, I believe. Yeah. And there are a couple of reasons for for focusing in on this particular cohort of leaders. They happen to be women. Um, I had hoped initially that this book was not going to be identified as anything that had to do with men or women, because at the end of the day, there are any number, perhaps the preponderance of leadership books that even still come out only reference male leaders, but there's never any conversation about that. So I had just sort of thought that could be a subtle thing, but it turns out <laughs> it may not be subtle after all. But the other thing is, Every one of these leaders faced what the Stanford law professor, Deborah Rode, who's recently passed, called a double crucible. And you've read about that in the book. And that concept is really applies to the idea that these leaders had to face the challenges of the job, which all of us in uniform know, right? Many of them were in combat. Some of them coordinated logistics across the entire theater in Iraq. Some of them flew combat missions. I mean, any number of things they had to, to manage, like, like all of us do. On top of that, they had an, another complete challenge, which was to negotiate those really difficult positions and skills in environments where they were often not wanted, they were frequently not respected, they were sometimes actively opposed. And so that is this concept that is the double crucible, which is basically double the grit. <laughs> so I figured if anybody's got double the grit, anybody, male or female, can learn from these leaders that have double the grit. And that was really the idea and the inspiration behind providing these stories. The last piece that I would mention is that women often don't tell their stories. And in the military, unless you're a Navy SEAL, with apologies to the Navy <laughs> SEALs, uh, people don't <laughs> tend to tell their stories. Uh, SEALs seem to like to tell their stories. But otherwise, <laughs> most people don't, right? And it was really hard to start to write this book and to write anything I've written about the military using the pronoun I. It was so hard because I kept writing we. And I realized the challenge of that in the midst of it, because when you write and you write creative nonfiction, you have to use the pronoun I, you have to own it, right? It's your experience. Uh, but we're so conditioned in the military that we are a unit, right? In one form or another. And so it's so important to tell these stories and to share these stories because both military as well as women leaders don't tend to do that. And in order to inspire and inform future generations of leaders, male and female in and out of uniform, 
it was really important to be able to shepherd these stories into being. And I'm so incredibly grateful for the chance to include them in the grip factor. Well, they're marvelous. I think it hits again. I think it hits across gender. I think the application that what you wanted, the connection was there uh, through my reading of it with what you just said. One about kind of this culture in the military, kind of about not telling the stories, but also especially around women. I wanted to ask a question. I was visiting with a colleague just a couple days ago who's getting ready to retire from the military uh, for 25 years and a woman. Great. And she said in our conversation, um, we were just talking, she talked about the mask that she's felt like she's had to wear in the military. Yeah. And it was interesting because I don't, recall that. Yeah. I recall to much degree being able to show up as my authentic self. And I just wondered if you could kind of maybe talk to this idea of a mask and because of this yeah. double crucible and how hard it is to kind of navigate those waters. Yeah. I, I think that's a great way to describe it. I know the reason that I ultimately decided to get out at the end of my commitment was in large part because I felt like I had to be somebody that I wasn't. And to some degree, I took on that as part of who I am. And I did it well. You know, I had great reviews and I was very effective and I'm grateful for that. But I had still felt like I had to be somebody that I wasn't. And there were big pieces of me that didn't get to show up or I didn't feel like they could show up. And, and you know, I have to own some of that too. That was my perception, at least. There may be others who don't have that same feeling and, and are able to do that more authentically. But I think that is part of the challenge. And all of us have to do it to some degree, right? I think everybody understands you walk into a company today and there's a certain culture. And so you don't go in, I like to say, you don't go in with your purple hair and your tank top into JP Morgan, right? I mean, that's just not going to work. So there are cultures that we have to adapt to, but the military culture is pretty intense. And for women who are moving into all-male fields, it's particularly intense. And so I mean, I, I had my hair cut short and buzzed up the back, you know, because I just, I did not want being a woman to factor into people's judgment of me. I remember I made sure I maxed every PT test and then I got criticized for that. Oh, all she cares about is PT. And I was like, oh my God, you can't win. Right. Uh, but um, but at the end of the day, I think it is true that, um, that while all of us have to adapt for a, a lot of women and for minorities, there is a particularly heavy burden of needing to act in a way that may not feel necessarily authentic to who you are in order to fit into the culture. And it, it's too bad because at the, we are starting to understand, I think, a lot more today that we need all kinds of leaders to be effective. We need right. all kinds of leaders to be able to come in and to accomplish a mission well. And that applies in and out of uniform. And so I, I hope that that's starting to shift. I imagine it's going to take a lot longer in certain places in the military than others. But um, but I think that's that's really well put by your colleague. And uh, and that certainly was my experience as well. Thank you. Looking at the many examples you share in your book, did one woman's story in particular resonate with you personally as an example of real grittiness? Yeah, you know, um, I love and hate this question. I hate it because they are all such <laughs> amazing stories. Uh, but I decided today that I'm going to talk about Karen Finn Brash. And she is a, she ended up doing an entire career in the Navy, but she started out as what she would call a Texas sorority girl. And her father had been a Navy pilot, so she had some understanding of a, a little bit about the service and, and what was involved. But, you know, she said she had big hair and she showed up to fly and at a civilian airfield with a Diet Coke and a miniskirt and the, the flight instructor's like, put the Diet Coke over there and get in. And, <laughs> and, and the story that I remember that Karen tells, which I just love, is that 
she was going through OCS and going through the officer candidate school, which is a little bit more like boot camp than those of us who go through ROTC or I assume the academies as well. OCS is kind of like like the enlisted sort of a thing as well as then becoming an officer, right? So she's she's having to to go over ops, this obstacle course, which she cannot do. She's not she's not really an athlete. That's not her thing. And I think this was something I loved about sharing these stories. By the way, is you. Every single one of these leaders was so different, right? They didn't all come from the soccer team and the, the weightlifting team. They were like such a different cohort of, of leaders. And she cannot get over the obstacle. And she, if you can't pass the obstacle course, you can't pass OCS. And so she and a couple of the other women, because of course you have your own barracks as, as women uh, from the men, decide every night after lights out, they realize that the shower wall, which is cinder block shower wall, <laughs> is the same height as the obstacle. And so they go after lights out and they run at the cinder block wall again and again and again, just bruise up the entire front of their bodies. And they run at it again and again until they can get over wow. that block wall. And then they show up and they go over the obstacle. And I, I think that is such a great thing to just visualize because that's what it feels like sometimes is you're just running at this wall again and again, beating yourself up and you just... All you can see is that you're getting bruised and battered and, and you know what? And then one day you get over it. And that's part of what it's about. That's, that's, and so Karen's story, I think, is so brilliant. And she ends up, of course, as a pilot, as a naval commander. So she far surpasses the cinder block wall and the obstacle course at OCS. But her story is terrific. And, um, and she's now working in the corporate world as well. So she's made that transition into the corporate space and, and is applying, fortunately, for everyone who works with her, those lessons that she learned. So... But that visual is particularly good. There's more elements of her story that will speak to you as well when when people pick up the grit factor. But I love that one. Now, we all have those cinder blocks in our lives. It doesn't matter how old we get. Exactly. Uh, and just how much do we want to spend those late hours continuing to run at it? And are we willing to bruise ourselves a little bit too to, to get over it? So, And you know, you have to start to be a little more selective as you get older. <laughs> uh, yeah. You get injured more quickly and it takes longer to recover. Yeah, all, any, all anybody has to do is look at me and know I'm not running into any literal cinder blocks right now. <laughs> Same with me. <laughs> hey, everyone, Nolan here. I have to jump in and end today's podcast for part A of this show. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And also join us next week for part B of this awesome interview. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.